Welcome to the next podcast in Millinery Info. I'm your host, Lauren Ritchie. Thank you for joining me today for this episode with Louise Green. Louise launched her business in 1987 in West Los Angeles in California. She grew the business, selling to boutiques and department stores across the United States and around the world, producing from a 9,000-foot factory. I hope you enjoy this episode with Louise and hearing about how this business grew. I'd like to thank our wonderful podcast sponsors for making this episode possible. House of Adorn, Be Unique Millinery, Fat Millinery, The Essential Hat, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Hats by Lico, Hat Academy, Hat Mags, The Millinery Association of Australia, Marie D'Antoni Millinery, and Louise McDonald Milliner. You can find a link to each of these businesses in our show notes, either in your podcast app or through our website. If you've been enjoying listening to this podcast series, I would love to invite you to show your support through becoming a Patreon. We have two tiers available, which is a podcast sponsor or a supporter. You can find out more and sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash millinery info. Thank you so much for joining me today, Louise, on this Millinery Info podcast. It's wonderful to have you as part of our series. Um, I love to start with the question of how did you become involved with millinery? Okay, so um, in 1983, I came out to Los Angeles with two young children and I had to make a living somehow. So first of all, I started selling clothes on Venice Beach. I had an inn with uh, some manufacturers downtown, some family. And um, I did that for a while. But in England, I always uh, worked with my hands. It's the usual milliner story. You know, I tried everything, um, sewing, knitting, rug making, beading, and nothing really came of any of it. it was really just a hobby but coming out here I had to um yeah I had to make some money um my husband had just come out of architecture school so he was earning eight dollars an hour as a draftsman and so I thought well, what can I do well I didn't have many skills to get a get a job or anything so it was the 80s and I've always loved thrift shop shopping. So I would go and I'd buy uh, vintage tuxedo jackets, men's jackets, decorate them with beads and flowers and buttons and whatever. And I found a wearable art store in Santa Monica um, that took my things on consignment. And although the, the jacket sold, they sold very slowly. I went into a thrift store one day and I saw a box of old uh, millinery, uh, old hats, a box of old hats that um, I thought were really interesting. They were from the 40s and 50s. And I took them home and I cleaned them up and retrimmed them and put them in the uh, wearable art store and they sold immediately. Wow. So I did that again. I went to a thrift store, bought, bought some more old hats and put them in and they just kept selling. This was over a course of about six weeks. So I thought, oh, well, maybe there's a market. I didn't know why there was a market. Um, maybe there's a market for new hats, 
you know, because not everybody wants to wear secondhand things. So then I found out that people were buying these hats to wear with these dresses that were very popular in the late 80s and 90s, like little ditzy print dresses, crinkled and long, like prairie style almost, like Laura Ashley type things. And these hats happen to be perfect with them. So I want, so I thought, well, I'll see if there are any classes to learn how to make hats. Well, there was no computer in those days. I mean, not, you couldn't like research things. So I looked in the phone book, these big phone <laughs> books that we used to have. And I found one millinery class at LA City College. And I signed up for the class. The class was a Saturday morning. And I went in and I thought, wow, this is really odd. They were all African-American women making hats. So I sort of crept in and I sat in the back and there weren't any other white Jewish girls or white girls or anybody there. There were all these amazing women and they were making hats for church. And they weren't making hats to um, be in business. They were just making their own hats. Um, they were making hats and then they were doing matching covered purses and they were covering their shoes with fabric. So I started learning with these women and as I became friendly with them, they started telling me about other classes that were around town. There was one at an evening class at a high school. There was one woman, uh, Wilma Ray Gordon, who ended up being my main teacher, who taught out of her house. And I called her and she said, no, I don't have room for you. Um, you know, I'm full. And uh, so I kept calling and in the end, she called me back and said, someone dropped out, you know, would you like to join the class? So I had just had my third child at that time. And I took her, a newborn, and I went to her house and she had set up like a big sewing bee. And there were all these incredible church ladies sitting around the table and um, we st I started to learn to make hats. And my daughter would be under the table in a rocking chair and I would tap her with my feet. And when she woke up, she would get passed around the table and the women would sing hymns to her and, you know, really amazing church songs and whatever. And that's how I learned. And all of these women, they never wanted to be in business, but I knew I wanted to be in business. So as I was learning, I was collecting these hats together and I started researching who the most expensive stores were in Los Angeles, because the hats, as you know, take so long to make that they had to be expensive. I wanted to make money from them. So I found um, Rodeo Drive, I found a couple of stores, I took my baby, I took my, the hats in a box or a bag, and I just walked into the store and they were very receptive. And two stores on Rodeo Drive bought the hats immediately. 
And then um, there's a store on Melrose that is still there called a Maxfield. And Maxfield bought like out of the box, gave me a check right away. And I just kept going. I just fi kept finding all the shopping streets in Los Angeles and going to the best store. And that's how I started. And I would make the hats at home and then, um, you know, take them out and sell them. What style of hats were you making at that time? 20s. Very, I, that's a style that I've always loved. So it was obvious to me to make like cloches. That was, that was my look at the time. And how did you go about collecting the blocks that you're working with? Um, well, at that time, there were, there were millinery companies going out of business as I was going into business. So it wasn't that hard to buy in the beginning. And as I, as I got known and I started getting some um, newspaper articles or little magazine articles, people would contact me and say, hey, my aunt was a milliner. I have, you know, I have blocks in my garage. Can I, you know, would you like to buy them? So that's how it really started. And how many blocks did you end up collecting over your career? Thousands, thousands. I've kept some of my favorite ones. I still have, I still have one of everything, one of every machine, everything, just in case <laughs> I want to go back into it. I still have a studio set up right now. Fantastic. Yeah. So are you making it all at the moment? Hats? Yeah. No, no. Um, I, it's funny because I've gone back to upcycling clothing. It's like a big passion. I just, I'm such a flea market shopper and a thrift store shopper and I love to dye things and change them into something else. So right now, I mean, we, I've been retired for two and a half years and I needed a break. Um, whether I'll go back and make some more hats, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. And after you were, uh, had those first buyers um, in Los Angeles, how did your business grow? What were some of the big events that happened for you? Well, I was selling to one store um, on Main Street in Santa Monica called Samico. And one day a representative from the California Mart, that's the wholesale center, she saw my hats. She called me and she said, if you design a line and you can reproduce, then I will sell them for you on the West Coast. Hey. So I thought, okay, now if I really want to make some money and have a career, I can't sit in my house making the hats myself. I just couldn't make enough if she was going to sell them on the West Coast. So I also looked in the phone book again and found a contractor downtown Los Angeles who was blocking for other people and so I would go that down there I'd either take my blocks or I would look through her blocks we'd decide on the shapes I would take all the materials she would completely make the hat and then I would bring them home and I would trim them up um, but 
after so I designed the line put them in in the showroom and they were so popular that I had to find employees like really quickly so my uh, my housekeeper who cleaned my house one morning a week she told me well I can sew and so she would clean my house and then sit down with me and sew so I would pin all the trims on and she would sew them and then um, the second employee I had, uh, my dog got loose, ran around the block, went upstairs into an apartment building. And the woman who brought the dog back to me said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm making hats. And she said, can I work for you? I'm working at a bank and I hate it. And I'd really like to learn how to do this. Wow. So, <laughs> so we we started like that and we got lots of stores from this one rep in Los Angeles and I think the first few months I sold probably six thousand dollars worth of hats and then uh, my husband said why don't we do a trade show in New York he knew about trade shows because his family was in the garment business so I said well how much does it cost to do it? And he said, $6,000. So I said, but we just made $6,000. And he said, well, you know, if we lose it, we lose it, you know, and you can start again. So we did that. I designed the line. We went to the trade show. We didn't know any other stores, you know, um, apart from on the West Coast. So we set up a booth we didn't do any advertising we didn't do anything and the doors of the the um, show opened and the booth was packed and we took home like fifty thousand dollars worth of orders we had no idea how we were going to make the hats whatever but we did we found people we always employed people from the garment industry people that had real skills um i ended up with employees that had way more skills than i did and that's how we always worked we always looked for people who could do better okay. how many employees did you end up having well okay so let me backtrack a bit so we do, we were selling to boutiques and we had a few employees and then i went to a um i rented for a market week um a showroom i shared with someone in dallas and i called nima marcus and they came to me and they put in their first order and they ended up each season ordering like 500 handmade hats from us and so we ended up with the at our, our very height when we were selling to like neiman's and then Saks fifth avenue and barney's and nordstrom we had 16 of us making hats that's a huge team yeah it was a big team it was really fun though at that time it was it was really fun so and at that time, you've got to remember it was the 80s and 90s. There was a lot of money around. So to, to spend $300, $400, $500 on a hat wasn't 
you know, people didn't think about it at that at that time. How did that shift moving moving from that time? Um, did you continue to supply to those those big um, wholesale companies? Well, I always well when we first started, I wouldn't let anyone. I wouldn't do any custom for anybody. I wouldn't sell retail because I was worried about losing my stores. And I thought if they knew that I was selling from my own showroom, then I would lose them. Um, but things changed a lot over the years. There weren't so many department stores willing to uh, buy um, buy expensive hats. They would prefer to buy shoes or sunglasses or something or handbags. Um, so we started uh, doing retail. We set up we set up a really nice showroom in the in the um, studio, and um, you know we started letting the ladies come in. Um, but um, one thing I didn't I didn't say is that our business. The, the customers that were buying our hats in the beginning were Orthodox Jews mm -hmm. and church ladies who went to church. And being Jewish myself, but not being religious, I had no idea that religious women covered their hair to go into the synagogue. So that was a big surprise. You know, that was a big surprise and that was an amazing part of our business for a long time. Incredible. And um, do you think that the pieces that those women are choosing to wear to synagogue and to church are different, uh, are a different style to what other consumers would be purchasing? Um, at that time, you're talking yes. about that yes. time? Um, I think I offered them something a little bit different. Um, the famous milliners in, in the, the States were all men and my hats were very feminine and very pretty. So um, I think that's why they liked them. Yeah, I think it was just a, a whole different look. What types of trimmings were you using on these pieces? Well, in the beginning, I was only using vintage. And there was a lot of vintage around, you know, that I, I used to buy. Um, then I found this amazing flower maker downtown Los Angeles, a Japanese woman who had learned from her mother. And then I, I, I just could take all my different types of fabrics, you know, vintage fabrics, velvets, uh, chiffons, and I could design my own flowers with her flower making tools. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And when did you shift, you, when you first started your working from home, when did you shift to a studio space? Well, <laughs> we owned, my husband, before he went to architecture school, um, had a job um, where he saved money and we were able to buy an apartment building in Santa Monica where we lived in the front and it paid and our tenants paid for for our um our rent so we had a house and then we had six units behind it and as people moved out we would take each one over for the hat making 
So we would have uh, one, uh, one for blocking hats, one for um, trimming hats, one for shipping, and it ended up we had the whole building. Oh, wow. um, yeah, because what happened was the uh, woman who was making the hats for me downtown, she decided she didn't want to do it anymore. So I was stuck. I didn't know how we were going to produce so many hats. So um, we flew to New York to a, an amazing um, friend who was a milliner who showed us how to where to buy all the equipment all the steamers and all, all of that and the steam sinks and everything. So um, we, uh, we set up in the apartment building. Yeah, and then our, when once we just got so overcrowded in the building, we ended up renting a building in Santa Monica. It was like 5,000 square feet. And we were there for, I think, uh, like five years. And the building got sold under us. We were paying rent and the building got sold under, out from under us. And um, it sold to, uh, you know, the music industry was moving into Santa Monica. So we ended up um, buying a building in West Los Angeles. And that's where we were right up until the end. Yeah. And when you started shifting to uh, making custom orders, um, how did you establish the relationship with those clients? Did they just know your brand and they wanted something unique from you, or how, a lot did that of people? Start? Well, a lot of people knew the brand, and they would find. Well, we had a website at that point, um, so uh, oh, we we made a catalog. We made a wholesale and a retail catalog that we sent out. Um, I can't remember where the mailing lists came from actually but anyway we we sent out catalogs and also we had our website so people could buy retail on the website or we had they could call us or email us and make an appointment and they they would come in I mean it was a big transition you know to be dealing with the customers you know bringing in their suits and trying on all the shapes and going in the back and pulling out everything that matched, you know, but it was fun. It was really fun. It's a really different um, interaction and creative yeah. process in that. Yeah. And we were, we started doing a lot for the Kentucky Derby, which was very different as well, because I was making 20 style closures and suddenly people wanted like huge hats <laughs> Like they suddenly wanted all these like gorgeous flamboyant hats. So I really had to switch into that mode. And did that change the types of materials you were working with as well? Well, we ended up using a lot of cinema and buying, you know, getting a lot of big blocks made, um, things like that. You know, so we were doing custom for, you know, Kentucky Derby, weddings, uh, bar mitzvahs, graduations, and also we have Hollywood. So we were doing a lot of things for um, TV, you know, musicians, you know, whatever, whatever came along. 
Yeah, okay. And where were you getting your box made? Was there somewhere within the US or did you have to bring import them? Um, from England, from Luton, most of them. Or um, I bought a lot secondhand too. Yeah. yeah. Pretty interesting. And how did that, um, that shift? So you, you retired two years ago. Um, how, what was the business looking like towards the, before your retirement? Well, it was a little difficult because the department stores weren't doing well. So they suddenly wanted consignment and I wasn't prepared to do consignment. Hats always come back completely squished at the end of the season if you, you know, if you're going to get things back. And I, I just wasn't you know, that wasn't good. You know, they kept changing their buyers. And um, so we lost a lot of the um, the big stores, right? And um, I don't know, I just felt that I had just come to a place in my life where I'd done everything in the millinery business, every, everything that I wanted to do and just decided one day i just woke up one day and said to my husband you know this is it i don't want to do it anymore i've given i've given 31 years and i want to do other things i want to travel which hasn't happened really since <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so what did you do in terms of, um, you've still got your studio set up, but what were some of the things you had to do to kind of wrap, can you still buy a Louise Green hat at the moment? What did we you sold every single hat. We sold hundreds of them uh, retail once we told people that we weren't going to make them anymore. Um, we sold uh, a lot of supplies on Milliners Exchange on face on Facebook that was a really big thing thank goodness for Milliners Exchange because um, we got rid of almost everything we wanted to before the pandemic started yeah which was a lot because I had a lot of uh, vintage trims materials uh, that I'd been collecting for the 30 years so there was there was a lot to clear out yeah you are a milliner, but also you've done a lot of you produced in a, a mass way. Um, how is the approach to a, that that commercial aspect of millinery versus a single custom made piece? Oh, well, what we did was we had a team, and everybody had a specialty, so they didn't. It was more like a a production line, but hand done. So I would have. The first thing I would have the blocker. At one time we had two or three blockers. We had a blocking room and a huge oven to dry the hats. Just you know, we had steam sinks. Um, everything was done by hand. Um, then we had um, machine sewers that would sew the wires in and um, sew the edges on, ribbon edges or whatever. And then um, the hats would go to the trimmers. We would have, at one time, we had like four trimmers going at once. Um, they would pin all the trims on and um, then they would be hand sewn. 
Um, I would do my job throughout my career was really the designing, the buying, and a lot of the selling. Um, and maybe, and you know, watching the quality, quality control was really important. So I, I saw every single hat that went out to say Nima Marcus, every 500 hats I would, I would have every single one of them in my hand, looking at them, making sure, sure they were sewn properly, trying them on, you know, before they went over to uh, shipping. Such a huge, huge production and to have grown. It was. Your, just yourself starting retrimming, restoring vintage to a, a full production line is incredible. Yeah, and it were and it was a very organic business. It wasn't anything that we thought was going to happen. We didn't know. We had no idea, but we knew. My husband and I, he gave up architecture after I started, you know, earning a serious living. Um, he gave up, and we realized that we had to succeed. We had three children at that point, and that we didn't have a you know, there was no, um, there was no other career. There were, you know, there was, there was nothing else that we thought we could do. So uh, we had to make success out of it. Did he work in the business with you? Oh, he was the business side. He has a degree in architecture and um, economics. So he once, because I have no business head at all, apart from I know how to sell, but to do, I, when he came in with me, I said, okay, you can only come in with me if you take all of that stuff away, all the money stuff. I don't want to know about any of it. And that's what he did right up until the end. And that's an amazing thing. Was there a moment when you went, my gosh, we've, we've, what have we created? This is an incredible business, an incredible space to be in. It was really awesome. It's been, it was an awesome career. I mean, we we had we did so many fun projects. One of the first hats we made was for Gwen Stefani, and then we made um, a, a birdcage top hat for uh, Taylor Swift for the Grammys. We had James Taylor come in and sit with us for an hour and a half and buy a hat. Um, we made an amazing pillbox hat for Katy Perry to meet the Pope. Um, we made a, numerous hats for a modern family and uh, especially for Sofia Vergara. And we made the white hat for Kerry Washington for, uh, you know, uh, Olivia Pope, the white hat, we did that. And um, Oh my gosh, there were so many. Uh, Laura Dern for Big Little Lies, her um, My Fair Lady hat, we did that. Uh, Caitlin Jenner for Opening of Del Mar, which was incredible. She had a huge head. We had to make like a 26 inch uh, hat. Um, Deborah Messing for Will and Grace. Uh, we made hats for the royal wedding. We made four hats for the royal wedding. And um, yeah, just, it's just amazing. 
that's incredible and those people who came to you is that um how did those come about it's just being present and being creative in the industry that they come to come to find your name or you reach yeah i mean we we have we had a name in millinery and we have um a building which is just off of the 405 freeway with louise green at the top and a lot of people see it people either going to the airports or coming from the airport. Um, yeah, so people would just call on the phone and uh, say, I'm driving by your place, can I come in? And in the in the entertainment business, I guess it was word of mouth. And what was the first, you did a little bit of film and television. What was the first one of those that really, um, that you were a part of? Um, the first, I think the first TV series we did was Desperate Housewives. I don't know if you remember that show. Yeah. We did a lot. We did a lot for that, and um, we just happened to meet someone one day who knew the costumer, and she came to me. It was just luck, just complete luck. And for millionaires who are new to the business at this around this time, what would be some advice that you would have for them in terms of building and sustaining their business? Well, it's very different than it was when I started. So I think obvious, the obvious thing is very, you know, learn how to make a hat, but don't wait until you've learned every skill. You know, if you make a hat that you're proud of, then that's good enough to sell it you know you can be learning as you're selling so that's that's one thing but i mean social media is so important these days you can be a tiny tiny business and have a big big presence and i think if i was starting again um that's what i i would work on i mean i sold a lot of my materials through social media Everything that you show, every photograph, every time you go out and wearing one of your hats, you have to look the best you can look. I mean, I would go to the trade shows and I would have like complete 1920s outfits, like the, the flapper dress, the hat, the shoes, everything. And I'm always surprised, I was surprised when I went to the trade shows and there were other hat makers there and they weren't even wearing a hat. They weren't even showing their own designs. So I think it's really important to definitely wear your own hats, you know, um, and dress. Go always, always dress the best that you can, you know. Just to, I guess, just to believe in yourself, you know, believe in yourself, try not to copy other people's designs, to come up with your own designs and try and come up with something different, you know, something that, that appeals to a certain market. I mean, you have to decide who you think your market is and just go for it. <laughs> Yeah. How about, how about um, 
pricing and um, knowing what, what the price point of your pieces. Is. Okay, so that's really important. That is because you can work so hard and sell your sell tons and tons of hats and not make any money. So my husband actually taught me the cost sheet deal, you know, where I had to write down everything. Uh, the cost of the hat body, um, the cost of the trims, um, how long it took to pin on, how long it took to sew, you know, how, how much the tissue paper costs that you wrap the hat in, how, how much um, the box costs, how much it costs to ship. You know, I mean, it, that's a lot of work. We used to do, um, we used to do every season, the whole line. And I think at one point I had like 250 hats in the line. We had to do a, a cost sheet for everything. Yeah. But that also equates to your commercial success as well. If that's such an important step in your business success. Yeah, yeah. And don't, um, one piece of advice is don't, undervalue yourself because an expensive item whether it's shoes or a hat or a purse are not for everyone they're only for a certain market and if people come in and say you know oh if i buy two can i have a discount or if i buy three can i have it for this much no, I, we always used to say, no, 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 if you can only afford one, it's fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, it's a skill. It's a learned skill and not everyone can do it and not everyone is willing to do it. And you have to know your worth. That's the most important thing. That is such a wonderful piece of advice. And I think <laughs> such a lovely note to end on thank you so much louise for talking hats with me today. lauren thank you so much that was so fun thank you for listening to this episode of milliner info with louise with each podcast episode we share with you some images on our social media but if you head over to our website you'll find some more pictures relating to this episode that louise has shared thank you to our wonderful podcast sponsors be Unique Millinery, House of Dawn, The Essential Hat, Pet Millinery, Hatter's Millinery Supplies, Lifted Millinery, Hat Academy, Hats by Lico, Hat Mags, Marie D'Antony Millinery, Louise McDonald Milliner, and the Millinery Association of Australia for making this episode possible. We really appreciate their support for making this episode possible. You can find a link to each of their businesses in our show notes. This you can find in your podcast app or through our website. If you would like to become a patron of Milliner Info, there are two tiers. A podcast sponsor, which means your business or event is mentioned in our podcast. We include a link in the Milliner Info website and in the monthly newsletter. This starts from just $15 per month. We also have a supporter tier, which is from $5 a month, a little more than shouting us a coffee a month. It is for those who would like to more quietly show their support so we can keep producing the content you see and hear on Milliner Info. If you have any questions about becoming a Patreon, I would love to hear from you. Otherwise, you can visit www.patreon.com forward slash millinery info to sign up. 
I'm your host, Flora Ritchie. Thank you for joining me for this episode. And I look forward to talking hat to you again soon.